0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The 80s. The era of hair bands. Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. Apple introduced the Macintosh computer, and the world learned about AIDS for the first time. In Native America, the 80s also marked the closure of many Indian boarding schools. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act became law and opened the floodgates for tribal gaming. And natives of this decade were continuing the fight for fishing and hunting rights. We're continuing our series, Through the Decades, with the 80s, right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A resolution supporting the name change of an area in the Great Smoky Mountains known as Klingman's Dome, back to its Cherokee name, has passed the Tribal Council of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina. The effort is being led by two Cherokee women who went before the Tribal Council last week. LaVita Hill and Mary Crow are conducting research and meeting with Cherokee elders, language speakers, and are inviting community members to join them in their efforts to return the name to Kauahi. Crow says they're seeking assistance from Cherokee language speakers on the spelling and pronunciation of the word, which has different dialects.
2: Kauahi, Kulahi, however you pronounce it, because we have different dialects. We have to understand that and we do understand that. What we hope to do is to be able to come as a collective community group of elders to us. I'm, I'm a middle-aged one still, I, I ain't hit that mark yet, but to our younger folks. You know, we see this as an avenue for our younger generation to, to learn, to, le- to relearn. To, to relearn who and what we are as a people that Creator placed us here.
1: Crow urged the council not to let a language barrier halt their efforts.
2: The area and itself to who it is for our people have been there for thousands of years to millennia. So what we would like is, like I said, is to get council's blessing to pass this resolution so that we can then continue to work on with those individuals who want to join us in uh, getting this process on up to the
1: federal level. They're hopeful the name change will be approved by the federal government, pointing to name changes taking place across the country, including one recently in Yellowstone National Park. The mountain is currently named after politician and Confederate Army General Thomas Klingman. This past weekend, the Coquille tribe held its first-ever bass derby in another effort to remove the invasive fish from their waterways by offering cash incentives. As KLCC's Brian Bull reports, the big prize fish is still at large.
0: Before the derby, the tribe tagged almost four dozen bass with microchips. Each carries different cash prize values. 200 people showed up and reeled in more than 2,000 smallmouth bass. Some anglers won 50 100 and $200. Dollars. But one fish is still roaming the waters with a $1,000 payoff. Fred Fry is a commissioner with the Coquille River Port District and
3: derby organizer.
4: The better the price tag, the better the turnout. Smallmouth bass, uh, they're invasive species, they're not indigenous. And they're unbalancing the ecosystem, and they're eating all the small salmon fish. So we have a much diminished run before they ever get out in the ocean. The
0: next derby is Labor Day weekend. Details are on the port district's website. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull.
1: The Walker River Paiute Tribe and the U.S. Department of Agriculture recently signed a cooperative agreement to promote economic opportunities to farmers and producers and to increase access to locally sourced fresh healthy foods for the community. The tribal community, located in rural Nevada, will work with a local food producer to source and distribute dairy, eggs, and produce to the reservation. The program was authorized under the American Rescue Plan to improve food and agricultural supply chains. The tribe is the first to to sign the USDA local food purchase agreement. Agency officials say additional agreements with tribal governments will follow in coming weeks. USDA is expected to award up to $400 million through the program to state and tribal governments. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation. Supporting Native-led initiatives protecting lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Proposals accepted through September 1st at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. The Institute of American Indian Arts presents the Virtual Holiday Marketplace now through the new year. A variety of items from the IAIA community are now available for purchase at iaia.edu marketplace who support this show.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're continuing our look through the decades today by focusing on the 1980s. Yes, this is the time when the hair got big and the mullet was in, and you could build a song around a guitar solo. Ronald Reagan was the president, and tribes were exercising new sovereign rights gained during the start of the self-determination era. But there was continued opposition to Indian gaming, tribal hunting and fishing, ceremonial peyote use, and protection of sacred sites. Some of the Native leaders who made a name for themselves are Wilma Mankiller, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, and Wendell Chino. The 80s wrapped up with the signing of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the release of one of the most enduring Native films, Powwow Highway. And the first National Native News newscast aired in 1987. We're reflecting on the 80s today. What do you remember most about that nostalgic decade? What was happening with your tribe during the era of parachute pants and stonewashed denim? 1-800-996-2848, the number to call to share your memories. We're also at 1-800-99Native. On the line in Tempe, Arizona is Dr. James Riding-In. He's a retired professor and founding member of the American Indian Studies program at Arizona State University, focusing on repatriation, sacred sites, protection, and Pawnee history and culture. He's Pawnee. James, you've been a guest before. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you. It's good to be back.
0: Well, James, I shared in the intro that much of the 80s was about defending rights and freedoms. And at the tail end of the 70s, tribes saw the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act and the Religious Freedom Act, and the bold decision was decided by the Supreme Court. Could you take us to the early 80s? How were tribes dealing with these changes in the law?
5: Yeah. Well, I'd like to begin by saying that the early 80s were a continuation of past decades these struggles we've been fighting a result of the colonization of our people and the invasion of our lands. So yeah, when um, the 80s started, I was actually teaching in an alternative school in um, Zuni Pueblo, and um, uh, we were developing curriculum there uh, that supported uh, the sovereignty of Zuni Pueblo that focused on uh, cultural values, beliefs, um, and, and general federal Indian policy with the hopes that we could educate future generations of leaders, you know, who would carry on these struggles. And some of our students have, uh, they they did really well because I maintain close contact with, uh, with Zuni. Um, you know, um, the Oliphant decision had come down in the late uh, 1970s and uh, that alternative school I was teaching in uh, had a teacher get busted by the Zuni game and fish uh, for um, um, uh, digging up, uh, well, he was suspected of de- digging up some of these sites looking for pottery. And they raided his house, and they found a few marijuana plants and a few pottery shards. And the way that the uh, Zuni uh, Pueblo court system dealt with that was to um, exclude him from the reservation. So we lost our math teacher, and it took a little while to replace us. But that's something that Olafant did. was to uh, uh, it, it encouraged uh, um, Indians... Uh, Indian governments and courts to find ways to deal with non-Indian uh, violators on their lands. Um, that was one method. Um, religious freedom was uh, going on at that time. You know, ERFA um, was passed, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed in the 70s, but it was a, um, a law without teeth. And it was a good philosophical statement, but you, uh, it wouldn't stand up in courts as, as a way to protect sacred places, uh, but it did provide, you know, that foundation for uh, for moving forward. And there was spinoff legislation that came about, too, because of our movements for uh, uh, repatriation to get our ancestors out of these museums um, that were, you know, these ancestors were stolen. So, you know, a whole uh, industry developed on the, based on the exploitation of our deceased relatives and um, their funerary objects and cultural objects and objects of cultural patrimony. So, uh, you know, we were... Um, engage in that struggle, which, um, led to the enactment of, um, some state laws in the eighties. And then in the, in the nineties, um, uh, the, uh, um, National Museum of the American Indian Act, which pertained only to the Smithsonian in terms of repatriation and the following year, um, um, uh, uh NAGPRA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, it was a busy time and, uh, you know, we were, uh, uh, the sacred uh, or the religious freedom movement, uh, it was concerned with peyote because um, under the Smith decision uh, the Supreme Court stripped the compelling state interest test uh, from the Constitution so, uh, you know, uh, grandpas and grandmas who were going to Texas to uh, pick up uh, peyote for um, ceremonial use could be arrested and charged with uh, criminal offenses. Um, sacred places were being uh, desecrated and violated. Uh, we were denied access to feathers and animal parts and our religious, our, 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 our uh, prisoners were denied access to Indian spiritual leaders. So uh, a movement started after, um, uh, the Smith and the Lincoln decision came into play also, which essentially said that, uh, the federal government could, uh, uh, disrupt a sacred site, even if it would destroy a religion because it was government land and the, uh u s government could do essentially what it wanted to on its own land so um mm. the Smith decision threatened um, um mainstream churches or actually uh Christian um, churches outside the mainstream for in- instance uh, uh, a priest could be arrested for uh, uh, giving um a uh, holy sacrament wine to a minor you know for delinquency charges um, uh, the homage could be arrested for not having uh, uh, stoplights and windshield wipers on their on their buggies. Um, So things like that were going on. So there was a coalition that formed to address these Indian issues that I mentioned a while ago and to restore the compelling state interest test. And that was done in 1993 with uh, the passage of the uh, of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that's like it. Yes.
0: I'm sorry right. it, it, what's interesting what you're describing is it, it wasn't just native people then that were impacted by uh these religious freedoms issues you mentioned the Amish and and, and other people as well so uh I I want to switch gears just a little bit though and, and ask you uh more about the bolt decision that was really important there in, in the 1970s with regard to to fishing rights and yet um there were still conflicts over fishing in the 1980s could you talk about that
5: yeah Well, um, when uh, the uh, native peoples of the uh, Pacific um, Northwest ceded their lands, they did so with the stipulation that they could uh, fish in the usual and custom places. And the federal government tried to enforce that a bit uh, when settlers started pouring into the area and trying to exclude Indians from these sites. So court cases go back quite a ways about these issues based on on treaty rights but the state of washington chose to ignore um uh treaty rights and under the constitution um treaties are the supreme law of the land so um uh protests were held in the beginning and actually even before then people would fish without license as uh, as the state was expecting them to do you know to purchase state license and uh, to follow all state laws and and all that but you know those restrictions imposed upon uh, indian sovereignty and indian treaty rights so um they uh, organized these fish-ins and created uh, uh you know worldwide attention uh to what was going on so yeah the bold decision um, said that indians were entitled to 50 percent of the salmon catch and um, um that was very significant because uh um, the non-indian population blamed indian fishing for depleting the salmon runs but in actuality it was co- quite commercial fishermen um, sports fishermen and pollution coming into the uh, uh, rivers and the billion of dams that uh, disrupted the uh, uh, spawning patterns of, of the salmon so uh, that uh, case was very significant but of course you know these states uh, uh, seem to think that indians have some type of special privileges when our treaty rights are involved and uh um that's a, a big cause of uh, of the conflict you know is that uh, the non indian population seemed to want sole access to the fish and the boat decision set them back and um uh so that's why the the con uh, the uh, conflicts conflicts continued and court cases continued as well
0: okay and in nineteen eighty seven the Indian gaming regulatory act was passed and that just Really, really changed the uh, the whole landscape, and uh, what we think of now is casino gaming, tribal gaming, all over uh, Indian country. Uh, it has its roots there in 1987. James, um, how significant was that?
5: Well, actually, the uh, uh, Indian gaming be- began before then, which is very significant in Florida. Yeah, the bingo, the right? The bingo yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and and when did that start? Was that in the six? As early as the sixties?
5: Uh, I think it was the 70s or early 80s. And actually, okay. uh, under the Reagan administration, uh, there was encouragement for Indians to, and, to engage in those type of economic enterprises. But, of course, the state wanted to regulate it and use the, the same old arguments that we heard later on, that uh, that uh, gaming would corrupt the, the morals of the young people, that these would be uh, uh, havens for crime and uh, uh, all kinds of nonsense like this. Um So, yeah, uh, the the Indian Gaming Gaming Regulatory Act resulted from uh, Supreme Court cases that said that uh, uh, the states could not uh, regulate Indian gaming, you know, in California. So that was a a huge uh, victory for Indians, although, you know, it provided avenues for states to uh, uh, have some regulation over Indian gaming, you know, like monitoring and the compacts and things like that. But overall, it's been an economic boom it has helped um, Indians and non-Indians alike with jobs, uh, monies for programs. Uh, you know, uh, the Indian Game, Game Regulatory Act stipulates the way that Indians have to spend money. So uh, it it has widespread benefits. It's interesting that the, that the business enterprises in, um, let's say, Vegas don't have those same concerns, <laughs> but they're imposed on Indians.
0: We're speaking with Dr. James Riding In. He's in Tempe, Arizona, and he's giving us Some background, some legal background on 1980s and some of the prolific uh, legal suits and whatnot. Give us a call. We'll be right back after this break. Pope Francis is set to visit with First Nations leaders again, this time in Canada, and he's expected to issue a formal apology for the Catholic Church's role in running residential schools. On the next Native America calling, we'll discuss how a formal papal apology fits into Indigenous healing and Canada's truth and reconciliation process.
3: Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities. Protecting tribal sovereignty and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com.
0: That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're taking a trip back to the 1980s. Among the tax breaks, the rise of yuppies and Michael Jackson's white glove, there were breakthroughs for tribal gaming and treaty rights and a maturing sense of representation in pop culture and the arts. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before we jump back into our conversation, I wanna share a few interesting 80s factoids. In 1980, Maria Montoya Martinez, AKA Maria the Potter of San Alfonso Pueblo, passed away at the age of 93. In 1981, the Lakota Times newspaper, which later became Indian Country Today, began publication in South Dakota. We're talking right now with Dr. James Riding, in a retired professor at Arizona State University. And James, um, in the 1980s, uh, who were some Native leaders that were making changes or, or causing controversy in Indian Country?
5: Um, um in New Mexico, at. Uh... At uh, Mescalero, uh, Wendocino was a firm supporter of Indian sovereignty. And um, they, uh, uh, one, took matters to court dealing with uh, uh, the sale of alcohol uh, on the reservation. And, uh, um, you know, because the state was trying to restrict it. So they won those cases. Um, uh, uh, Jordan, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his first name from uh, uh, Red Lake. Uh, was another one. And when he was asked about uh, uh, about Indian um, issues regarding civil rights, and his response was Indian struggles are about sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Uh, Women um uh, stepped up and did a good job of uh, gaining a lot of national attention. Uh, that benefited not only uh, her Cheyenne uh, nation, but other uh, Indian nations as well. Um, okay. We had uh, NARF to... Native American Right fund the t- lawyers there were engaged in uh, work in protecting uh, uh Indian sovereignty and and human rights. Uh, so um uh John Echohawk uh, was there my some of my Pawnee uh, relatives uh speaking broadly uh, Walter Echohawk uh and, and a number of other uh, non-Pawnee lawyers were were there as well. So you know it was a uh, a uh, formative time for me, I was in graduate school for much of the 80s, and uh, w- uh, there was a lot to draw from, you know, when I was wanted to do papers about um, contemporary Indian issues.
0: Okay. And uh, you mentioned Principal Chief Wilma Mankiller of the Cherokee Nation, and in fact, she just was memorialized Uh, on a U.S. coin earlier this year. So, again, another iconic figure in in Indian country from the 1980s. And, James, uh, the boarding schools, there were some closures of boarding schools during the 80s, and uh, as I understand it, there was a lot of Native opposition to the closing of those boarding schools, and tribes saw it as a violation of trust responsibility. Is that accurate? Uh,
5: Yes. Um, uh, When um, uh, Indians ceded their lands, uh, they did so in return for... Federal promises to education, uh, social services, and and other things, uh, support of uh, protection of Indian rights. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, when the boarding schools first started off, uh, they were uh, nothing but uh, uh, concentration camps for Indian students. And over time, um, the uh, harsh discipline and the attempts to stamp out uh, uh, Indian culture and Indian. Uh, language, which they did, uh, those boarding schools did a good job of doing, uh, those restrictions were pushed back. So uh, they became a little more Indian friendly and were not so uh, uh, desperate in the attempts to do away with uh, Indian culture and Indian language. So, um, you know, um, a lot of the children uh, went to school where their parents went to school. And, you know, they most of them had uh, good experiences, although I had an uncle who was uh, handcuffed uh, in the 60s at shilaco to a, a pipe uh, for he didn't tell me for what, but um, uh, but you know was, those types of punishments were still going on in those schools. But uh, Indians um, resisted the closing of these schools, you know, as a violation of the trust relationship and the treaty commitments that were um, promised to Indian people. So the students uh, would have to go to other uh, boarding schools that hadn't closed or uh, public schools our
0: uh, uh, parochial schools. Well, James, you mentioned earlier uh, the tribal leader from Red Lake, uh, Minnesota named Roger Jourdain. That was the correct last name there. And listeners, give us a call. We're talking about the 1980s, and we want to hear your memories. Uh, what are your thoughts on that romantic decade of the 1980s? one 800 2848 I consider myself the ultimate 80s child. I was 12 years old when the decade started, and I was 22 when it ended. I'd lived my entire teen years in the 1980s. I graduated high school right smack dab there in the middle of 1985, so uh, I'm all about the 80s. 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. Give us a call. What are you waiting for? We want to hear from you. Let's bring another guest in now who can talk more about hunting and fishing issues that impacted Native people in the 1980s. Larry Nesper is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the book The Walleye War, The Struggle for Ojibwe Spearfishing and Treaty Rights. Larry, it's great to have you on the show.
6: Thanks so much, Sean. It's great to be here and especially wonderful to listen to James review the 80s in such a comprehensive, uh, comprehensive way. It was really, really very refreshing to hear that.
0: I totally agree. Yeah, just a, a wonderful, wonderful overview of, of a lot that was going on in that decade. And James mentioned we talked about the Bolt decision and um, you know its impact on on fishing rights. And in Wisconsin, there was the Voigt decision. And why was that decision important too?
6: Well, let me just say the the Voigt decision really ought to be called the Lacouture decision. We usually we usually name cases after the winner. And the Lacoutere band, as the leadership of the various bands of Ojibwe throughout the region, were the winners in that case. And it actually uh, kind of springs out of the Bolt decision. The Bolt decision inspired Fred and Mike Triple of the Lacoutere community to uh, take their fishing spear off the reservation and and exercise their treaty rights that had been stipulated in the 1837 and 1842 uh, uh, treaties. Um, so they intentionally provoked a, uh, a conflict with the state over who has jurisdiction and who has the right to to fish off the reservation, as it were. So uh, the Bolt decision was an inspiration to these people. And what this wound up leading to was, uh, of course, you know, in the first round of this, Fred and Mike lost in court, and then the tribes joined on their side, and then they lost in federal court, and then finally in 1983 it went down to sweet home chicago to the seventh circuit court of appeals and the seventh circuit court basically said these treaty rights that ojibwe people stipulated for in the 19th century are good law and instructed the state of wisconsin and the tribes to sit down and negotiate and to figure out how it was going to be that ojibwe people would be able to exercise their hunting fishing and gathering rights throughout the whole seeded territories in Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin, and Minnesota.
0: Now, Larry, there was continued resistance by non-native anglers, and and even the the state of Wisconsin, as I understand it. What did that resistance look like, and how did that change as the 80s progressed? Uh,
6: Throughout the 80s, it was ugly. It was the state was not at all, uh, uh, what, appreciative of the fact that it had another sovereign that it had to deal with. So it played a role in, in 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 sort of, oh, I don't know, feeding the fires a little bit of the local protest. The locals, of course, did not appreciate the fact that uh, some people had treaty rights, and they resisted this. They showed up at the boat landings where Indian people were fishing for mostly walleye. They were spearfishing these fish at night during the spawn, and all of that was criticized. These white people didn't have the right to do this. They could only fish with a fishing pole, and they could only take so many walleyes per day, whereas Indian people were taking far more walleyes, though they were not taking more than the lakes could sustain. All of the biology had been worked out, and sustainable harvest formulas had been worked out. They were not damaging the resource. But throughout the 80s, it was ugly. It was, uh, it was things really, it, it, I think things started in 1985, and non-Indian people were curious, but over time it became politicized. And by 1989, there were hundreds of people arrested for civil disobedience on the boat landings. They were imagining themselves as civil rights uh, people who were opposing these special rights that Indian people had. This would change uh, in the early 90s, and uh, the federal court effectively weighed in and made it a federal offense to harass Indian people on the boat landings, and that really chilled out the protests. And then we get a, a long period of greater cooperation between the state and the tribes over the exercise of treaty rights.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have heard that um, you know, out of this whole conflict, uh, it, it, it did really improve communications between tribes and the state, and ultimately that that helped the tribes uh, when it came to negotiating gaming compacts, like we talked about earlier with James. Is that true?
6: I think that is true in Wisconsin. I think that the. the the tribes were largely isolated from each other, I think, or more isolated from each other before this treaty right conflict took place. This, this, now, insofar as it was multiple Ojibwe communities that had the same treaty right, it was a cause for developing relationships between the bands. Um, and, and so they were, op- they were seeing themselves as part of a larger political, cultural, and social entity than they had before that. And I, at the state had to get used to the idea that it was dealing with another sovereign, and it really did come around to that and, and began to understand that it, that it had to do this, and, and that began to happen. Uh, so that the effect of this is that you had multiple agreements made between the Department of Natural Resources and the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. You had relationships established between the tribes uh, and Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission and the, and the Fish and Wildlife Commission, the federal government, uh, and as well as the U.S. Forest Service. So you have this kind of articulation uh, on the part of sovereigns with each other over a period of time that really improved, I think, relationships. Now, they get into conflicts, of course, but there are mechanisms now to deal with it. There are venues for those kinds of conversations. One of the other things, uh, this business about about gaming, um, you, with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act hitting in 88 and the first compacts in Wisconsin developed in the early 1990s, uh, Indian people had become very sophisticated about negotiating with the state at this point, having worked through the whole process of 40 Uh, interim agreements and multiple trials and everything else. So people became quite sophisticated in dealing with the state, such that when they sat down to negotiate the compacts, they were in a much much better position than they might have been in had the treaty rights conflict not taken place.
0: We're speaking with Larry Nesper, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Folks, give us a call. Phone lines are open. We've got producers standing by waiting for your your call. 1-800-996-2848. If you have a question for one of our guests about some of these legal matters that occurred in the 1980s, feel free to give us a call. Or if you just want to share, you want to comment, you want to let us know something about what you remember about that fun decade, give us a call too. Phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. Larry, um these fish wars, uh prolific events there in Wisconsin and in, in the upper midwest in the 1980s. Um cultural and language revitalization efforts. Can they be traced uh in some regards to these fish wars that occurred?
6: Oh, in in many regards. I I think that uh that this is this is a really important aspect of this kind of conflict. I think conflict always causes people to reimagine who they are and to look upon their their historical, uh, cultural, social resources in a different way. Um, and it also is an interesting connection here with gaming. Gaming creates the possibility for an income, and, and, and the income can for tribal income, public uh, you know, monies, can now be allocated toward language revitalization programs for teaching young people the skills that they would need to exercise treaty rights For the development of of fish hatcheries. Before the Voigt decision, there were two fish hatcheries in Wisconsin. After the Voigt decision, there were nine. So now we're getting sort of infrastructure development, uh, the development of the resources, stewardship of the resources throughout the ceded territory as a result of that. Language revitalization programs were developed on many of the reservations. Another uh, off reservation development was that the state passed what's called Act 31, which requires that all of the public schools in the state of Wisconsin teach about treaty rights and Native American life in the state. It's an unfunded mandate, and it's not particularly well enforced. But nonetheless, many of the schools have taken up the challenge. Many of the districts have taken up the challenge. So we have a an awareness of uh, Native people in the state of Wisconsin like we have never had before as a result of that.
0: So it's really had
6: quite a bit of a change. The tribes have become real players, and there's a consciousness and an awareness of the presence of the tribes that would not have been anything like uh, it had been you know, previously to all these, this time.
0: Well, thank you, Larry. And uh, let's remind ourselves, instead of referring to this as the Voigt decision, as Larry suggested, the Lacouterie decision that occurred there in the 1980s with regard to fishing and angling rights uh, on behalf of tribes in, in Wisconsin. Let's continue our 80s dialogue and learn about what was happening in the native art world during that decade. America Meredith is a writer, visual artist, and independent curator. She's also the publishing editor of First American Art Magazine. She's an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. She's speaking with us now from Washington, D.C. America, you've been a guest before as well. Welcome back.
4: Sure, and I hope you can hear me this time.
0: (laughs) I can hear you great, America. The 1960s and the 70s, pivotal decades for Native art with all the activism and self-determination movements to draw from. What did Native artists bring to the 1980s?
4: Yeah, it was a really interesting time because a lot of the activism and laws and institutions created in the 70s kind of then were fulfilled in fruition in the 80s and then led to um, a lot of more laws and activism and institutions in the 1990s. You could see it kind of as an in-between decade of things being established, but oh my God, for... The commercial native arts for the galleries and the art markets, like Santa Fe Indian Market, the '80s were the decade. Like I'm almost glad I didn't really know it; <laughs> I wasn't there in Santa Fe when it was happening, because it was the it was the gold rush. I mean, that's a very poor to- choice of words, but um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> backpedaling rapidly. But um, it was crazy. Like even if your name wasn't very prominent, just people sold. So much art. It's unbelievable. So Indian Market, you know, which is celebrating its um, 100th anniversary this year, really um, had a lot of interesting developments. In 1980, it was still the Southwestern Association for Indian Affairs that ran the Santa Fe Indian Market, but um, they elected their first Native American woman board president. So you, you guys probably know Ramona Sakiastwa Hopi. She's a designer and a textile artist. And um, at
0: that time, America, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off so we can go to break, but we'll let you finish when we come back. one 996 2848 Get your comments on the air. We're talking the 1980s. We'll be right back. With
3: over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org
0: veterans. AARP supports this program. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Tell us what you remember about the 80s. Give us a call to join the conversation. one 800 996 2848 What are you waiting for? I want to hear from some 80s natives today. Tell us who you were hanging out with while George Strait was playing in the background. Come on, don't be shy. one 800 9962848 a couple more interesting factoids from the 1980s and 1983 lakota singer and guitar player buddy redbow recorded journey to the spirit world and in 1984 turtle mountain chippewa author louise erdrich published her debut novel love medicine and we are speaking right now with america meredith she is a visual artist and an independent curator. And, America, you were describing just some really exciting events and happenings there with regard to Santa Fe and Market, and, and, and very uh, auspicious because the market's just coming up here in, in less than a month. Continue uh, what you were telling us about that period of exciting art history in the 1980s.
4: Sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, Ramona Sakiesua, um, she was the board president but there was only one staff member at that time. And in 1980, they had 500 artists. They only had 40 um, volunteers. So she was pretty much, she ran it with absolutely no salary. So she was able to raise funds and um, actually have the next two executive directors. They were able to hire them and have real salaries. And by the end of the decade, there were 850 artists in um, Indian market. So it was big, it grew. Um, it was a great decade for feminist art and feminist art, you know, came out of the 70s and is really important to Native American art because part of the arguments of feminism and feminist art is there is no art center, that London and New York are not the centers, that arts being made all over the world, and that every form of art um, is valid. So um, these, you know, so-called crafts, you know, of ceramic art and uh, textile arts that are very important and revered throughout Native America that those were able to enter the um, mainstream art world and be accepted in mainstream Native art museums. But um, in mainstream art museums. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Everything kind of always happens in tribal communities. So there was actually this groundbreaking... Conceptual Art for Native American Women Artists was a group show out of Anadarko, Oklahoma, Southern Plains Indian Museum, 1980. And from there, there were uh, shows, women, Native women art shows in Washington, D.C., in Norman, Oklahoma. And then 1985, you have Daughters of the Earth, which was a major traveling exhibition of Native women artists launched out of Oklahoma City. That started in March. And then June of that year is much more famous because it was in New York City. Women of Sweetgrass, Cedar, and Sage. And that was curated by Harmony Hammond, really prominent feminist art, and Jean-Quictus Smith. So a lot of names we're familiar with today, you know, these powerhouse artists, they really started flexing their muscles in the 80s and really making a major impact. So you think of Rebecca Belmore, who's still huge, Jean-Quictus Smith, and um, James Luna. So there's time for performance art to come to the fore. And James Luna, unfortunately, we've lost him, but... um, in 1987, he did artifact piece at the Museum of Man in San Diego. So some of you might know that, where he actually laid in state, like he was in a museum display case, like he was a mannequin or something, and it had um, labels <laughs> all over him, which showed like scars, you know, and different ID cards. But it was it was profound. It was it had a major impact on people who visited and saw it, and it's actually been uh, replicated with permission by uh, performance artists today it's that important. And I know James Luna said that a good thing about performance art is it's re- it was relatively new art form at the time so it didn't have all this baggage of western history and western culture. It was kind of fresh and it really ties into native storytelling. And in that regard, you brought up a uh, um Pahua Highway. So that really that movie is such a classic. I think I've seen it a hundred times. I think we all have. <laughs> yeah. And um, that came out in 1989, and it has a mix of Native and non-Native casts. And the book, written by Bobby Seals, is brilliant. It's hilarious. It's way raunchier than the movie, but I actually like the movie more than the book. And <laughs> I, I think don't know if uh, your other speakers want to discuss it. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no. that's I, I, It's just, it's like the classic, you know, favorite Native road trip movie. And what's cool about Power Highway is it really – it introduced some of these new concepts, like, you know, like like – wealthy, middle-class, urban Native people. Like, that was just a whole new way to go in that decade, and and Powell Highway incorporated that. So um, we're going to talk more with America about Native art in the 80s. But before we do, we want to go to the phones. We've got Mark listening in Rice Lake, Wisconsin on WOGB. Mark, thanks for calling in today.
7: Uh, Hey, nice to be with you this day. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment on uh the early eighties, mid eighties, even through the late eighties here in Wisconsin. And uh first off, just give a shout out to that Lacouterie decision by uh Fred and Mike, some uh, honorable men who uh got that decision made for us. But I uh participated in the uh in the harvesting. And uh, it was very bad, very bad on the boat landings. And what I was calling in about was, has anybody done any research or did they just let PAR go by? Because one of the organizing forces on the, on the boat landings harassing the natives was PAR. Uh, it stood for Protect America's Rights and Resources. And uh, I think that might have been one of the first domestic terrorism organizations, should have been named that anyhow. But uh, that's all I'm calling in is, uh, can we go back and investigate who was behind PAR?
0: Mark, thanks for that call. And yeah, so PAR stands, stood for participating, or excuse me, Protect American Rights to Resources. And Larry, I want to ask you, uh, PAR, what do you know about him?
6: Well, thanks, Mark, for calling in and calling attention to that. Uh, I don't know what's happened to PAR over the years, uh, but it was certainly certainly an anti-Indian and anti-treaty organization, and I think that that to, to describe it as 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 uh, terrorism really raises an interesting question, it was certainly a white supremacy organization, insofar as it did not respect the, the, the constitutional rights of Indian people. But I don't know if, they, if how how long they survived. I think they certainly survived through the 1990s, but I don't know if they went beyond that. So that is something worthy of investigation, and I hope a listener out there uh, might take up that challenge.
0: Well, the more we're learning today about these uh, fish wars up there in the upper Midwest, it just uh really, really sounds like a, a very contentious time and uh, a frightening time, in all honesty. So, uh, America, I want to get back to, to Native art in the 80s. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I was a teenager and, and, and people sometimes ask me, hey, you know, what was the 80s really like? Was it fun? Was it really like it, it's shown in the movies? And what I, what I tell people, it was a, a very romantic decade in the sense of of just the the energy, the music, the pop culture. And and when I say romantic, I mean it from like a a literary sense of like people on quests and missions and journeys. And, America, was that kind of romanticism, was that reflected in the Native art of the
4: decade? I don't think so. I think there was a lot of piercing bubbles. I don't know. Sorry. And maybe I'm misinterpreting your... um... No, 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 go, them, no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people are popping bubbles and kind of making fun of a lot of things and making fun of themselves too. So I do that. I think that's why we love Power Highway so much. Is there's a lot of humor and it's also okay to do self critique. And when I think of the quintessential nineteen eighty s Native Art, I immediately think of uh, Harry Fonseca and the Coyote series. And of course, he is. Um, I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. N- Nasne? How do you pronounce that? Nice and, on. and they're related to Maidu, but, um, you know, Coyote is for California Indigenous Peoples' uh, trickster character. So it's fun. It's playful. Like, to have that that room to, you know, make serious points but also just express joy and exuberance is kind of exciting. And it seems like a lot of the art is very fractured. Uh, printmaking really came into ascendancy at this time where people are borrowing from the past borrowing from their own personal stories you know what we would call archival art today but um i think even though people are always native people are always dealing with really intense subjects there's also you know that laughter and joy um that comes out and um kind of back to what was going on in the mid um decade 1985 david pinney launched a major survey of ancient art of the american woodland indians which um, now we have so many resources of Hopewell and Mississippian artwork, but this was a really groundbreaking show. He was at of Detroit Institute of Arts. It showed at the National Gallery of Art. There's an amazing catalog. About 100,000 people um, attended this. So the 1980s, it's still pre-Google um, you know, Google and the Internet. Everything's not our fingertips. But the fact that uh, we're having more access to our own history is really revelatory. Because I know for a lot of Native people, our history has been taken from us. Um, And then, you know, there was so much interest and commercial investment in uh, Native art and, you know, definitely like bronze sculptures were doing great. Alan Hauser throughout his life, he really struggled through a lot of his life. And this time period, finally, you know, after decades and decades of working, you know, he had really arrived and people could finally appreciate what he was doing. And also Presley LaFontaine, major, um, you know, kind of stars, legends, uh, doing bronze sculpture. Um, but with all the success, it's kind of like a moment we're in now where, um, unfortunately it attracts frauds. So you feel this kind of rumbling and this push towards what would become the uh, 1990 Indian Arts and, Arts and Crafts Act, because there is so much fraud. And a lot of the artists that were previously claiming to be Native that now would be like, what? <laughs> wow, mm-hmm. no. You know, they went on to have successful, um, art careers as themselves as non-native people so it's like there's no law ever against making art everyone can make art but just you know please be honest about who you are i think that's very important right. and we're kind of in that right. moment now and at the close of the decade a really important development is of course the 1989 um museum of the american indian act that you know enabled the building of uh nmai at the mall later but it also was that precursor to NAGPRA, and i don't know if other people have spoken about that but um you know, some people will find out that NMAI is exempt from NAGPRA and be angry. It's like, no, they were the test case. So, um, this law in 1989 expanded repatriation to tribes, not just for human remains and funerary items, but also sacred objects and cultural patrimony. And my understanding is, and I'm very much an outsider of this, is um, some of the first most important things to be repatriated were wampum belts back to Haudenosaunee communities. So it's kind of, you can see the 80s as kind of wheels being put into motion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I can remember, like you mentioned, like when you started seeing like a lot of this kind of faux Native art and crafts and things like that. I, I definitely remember not seeing as much of that in the 70s, but in the 80s it became more pronounced, and we've got another caller on the line, Daryl. He is listening on W O J B in Hayward, Wisconsin. Daryl, great to have you calling back again.
8: Yes, um, I was listening to the their discussion about Par and such. I don't specifically know what happened with Par, but I think it's important to know that the fellow that was a, the biggest impetus for Par and for for the protest against uh, Asperin and such was taken to federal court and it was found that he was discriminatory and racial and his hatred and such, and he got a judgment of $180,000 um, against him. He he was running a pizza store in Mo- Manaqua, and I don't know if that's still operating, but anyway, and also I think it's important to understand and know that many of the places that these people go to, uh, non-native people go to, to get their sporting goods, such as Gander Mountain, they would, in the store, they would put up a table for people to sign up for PAR. But also, when we started our tribal police department at La Couture, I was the assistant police chief. And I went down to Gander Mountain, and they gave us a big discount on a huge gun safe that we bought for our weapons and ammo and evidence and such. And um, the other thing I think that's important to understand when these people talk about this, one of the big speakers at one of their meetings was Bud Grant, the former uh Coach for the Minnesota Vikings, and he got up and he was talking against it. I mean, for in favor of ParNet and I listened to his speech, and he really did not say anything. Uh, he did not take a stand, but he made it sound, you know, was a, there was hype in the way he was talking, and people thought that you know that was a great speech. Well, he really didn't say anything. So, people that are against native people have to understand this, and and it's important, I think, as you mentioned earlier, that people don't understand that. They think the Native people are taking so much of the game, and they're, it's really not true, as you're saying. And in mm-hmm. reality, as you was pointed out, prior to the, the court rulings, there were only two fish hatcheries in Wisconsin, I think you said. And after the ruling, there were nine fish hatcheries. Many of right, them are right. Native American hatcheries donating fish to all over, not just you know specifically to Native people, but it, into okay. all open water fishing areas.
0: Daryl, thanks for, for that call and a lot of really interesting insights that you share and personal experience. So, again, learning more about PAR, protect uh, Americans' right to resources. Sounds like a really um, interesting, just uh, a, an odd, odd organization there that was... Um, advocating against Native American rights during that time. Uh, America, I want to go back to you. We're gonna have to wrap up the show here in about a minute, but one thing we haven't talked about yet is is fashion, and I know Native fashion has really taken off in the last few years, but was some of that happening in the 80s as well, contemporary style, 80s Native fashions?
4: Yeah, and of course every decade has its own style, but um, Wendy uh, Ponca, who's Osage, she was a head, I I hope I had the right time period, but she was head of a very notorious and beloved uh, fashion club at IAIA, the Institute of American Arts in Santa Fe. So, um, you know, now all these famous people like Marcus Hammerman were part of that. And um, Rosemary Diaz, the poet and writer. But... Um, they were just wild. They would do everything, and they had access to the collections at um, IAI for inspiration. So again, that drawing of um, you know the historical, this access to the beautiful historical artwork, and then putting their own spin on it. So, Wendy, I think she's one of the first um, Indigenous futurists because she would make clothing out of mylar. You know, so I mean, people mm-hmm. were really free. I think in fashion back then. <laughs>
0: Well, folks, it's been fun stepping back in time a few decades, but unfortunately, we now need to click ahead back to the present and the year 2022. But hey, thank goodness for YouTube, the closest thing to a modern time machine. Dr. James in Amanda Meredith, and Larry Nesper, thank you all for joining us today and sharing so many keen insights and observations from the 1980s and what that decade meant to Native people. Join us on Native America calling again tomorrow for a discussion about Pope Francis's upcoming trip to Canada and his planned formal apology to indigenous people for past residential school abuses. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. My name is Assad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm
5: thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV
0: and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1 800 QUIT NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
4: Hey, hey. Chimna and services, CMS are don't
2: have to. Look Medicare
4: Medicare Services do